You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, we talk about rare diseases and orphan drugs. Maybe orphan drugs. Today on the show, we talk about rare diseases, and maybe not orphan drugs. <laughs> talk about orphan <laughs> drugs. We're going to talk about orphan drugs. Okay, then we'll talk about orphan drugs. There we go. Thank you, Jem. Continue with your intro. <laughs> Can we use that, please? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Life, the universe, and everything else explores the intersection of science and society. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, or send us an email at l-u-e-e-podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at l-u-e-e-podcast.com. My name is Jim Newman, and with me today I have Lauren Bailey. Hello. Ashlyn Noble. Hi there. And Laura Creek Newman. Hello. This month we're talking about rare diseases. This, I feel like this podcast is coming out a little bit late, since Rare Disease Day is the last day of February every year. But we're talking about rare diseases nonetheless. Uh, the idea of a rare disease is, I think, pretty self-explanatory to most people, if a little vague. So today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about some specific rare diseases, but I'm also interested in discussing what we're trying to do about them. That is to say, some of the public health responses to problems unique to rare diseases. And diseases that aren't really rare, but are kind of rare in some respects. So for the purposes of this discussion, it's worth asking, how rare is rare? Laura? The definition of a rare disease does vary a lot from country to country and region to region. So in the U.S., the definition of a rare disease is a, a disease that affects less than 200,000 people. So approximately 1 in 1,500. 200,000 people in the U.S. or 200,000 people in the world? In the United States. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually really good because as I was reading the, the research there, it wasn't entirely clear based on the way that it was... Uh, the statements were written mm -hmm. even on the NIH websites and that. And with the most common census data, it's actually closer to one in every 1,600 people. Sure. The, this, I'm taking this from the NIH website. So. Okay. And they did say approximately one in every 1,500. In the EU, it's defined as approximately uh, or a disease that affects approximately one in every 2,000 people. And in Japan, it's defined as one in every 2,500 people. So in some parts of the world, rare is rarer than other parts of the world. Yeah. And none of those definitions strike me as like super, super rare. You might know somebody easily with right. many rare diseases under that definition. And that's a really good point. Because while a lot of these diseases don't have all that many people affected by them, there are approximately 7,000 diseases that are categorized as rare. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the population of Canada, it's estimated that approximately 1 in 12 people is living with a rare disease. Wow. So someone living with a rare disease is far more common, but anyone living with a specific rare disease is rare, Very uncommon sure. in most cases. Listeners might be uh, noticing that we haven't mentioned the definition of a rare disease in Canada. That's because Canada doesn't actually have any officially recognized definition of a rare disease, uh, which, according to patient advocates, makes developing a comprehensive framework for battling rare diseases difficult. That's a good point. We're going to get into that a little bit later. 
However, most countries in the developed world do have some kind of a definition and a framework for rare diseases, but they didn't always go hand in hand. So one of the best known ones for us, again, our neighbors to the south, their definition for rare disease and the framework for treating them came in at the same time. It was baked into the same legislation, but that wasn't always true. For example, in the EU, their legislation for um, orphan drugs and, and rare disease treatments didn't come in until 2000. Wow. The European definition also has a caveat that isn't present in the American definition, which is that a disease is only considered a rare disease for the purpose of these um, incentives that we'll get into if it is life-threatening or chronically debilitating. Oh, so it doesn't count unless it's going to seriously screw up your life. Yeah. Interesting, because their framework for their orphan drugs is actually far more broad than that. So that's that's really interesting. And again, that's another difference around the world that to be categorized as a rare disease is narrow, but then their their treatment of orphan drugs, which is the legislation that goes along with it, is much more broad. So we'll talk about that in a minute. The United States actually also has an interesting caveat with their definition, uh, which if you'll notice when Laura said that it's uh, a condition that affects fewer than 200,000 people in the United States, that's pegged to a specific number. It's currently about one in every 1,500, one in every 1,600 Americans. But as the population grows, you're going to see uh, certain diseases falling off the list of rare diseases because they're no longer quite rare enough because the number of cases of that disease will grow with the population mm -hmm. and it might outstrip that 200,000 people line. Or even if the number of cases doesn't grow, but like the diagnostic criteria or whatever changes or you get better at diagnosing it. Although in that case, if the diagnostic criteria widens, then any any definition would uh, make it less rare. Mm -hmm. It would also be if we came up with treatments that prevented early death and allowed transmission of the disease. So hmm. one yeah, thing to know about rare diseases, the way that they're classified, the types of diseases, 80% of them are genetic. So very few are infectious or um, some other type of disease like mm -hmm. that. And many, many of them do affect children. In fact, about 30% of kids with rare diseases won't see their fifth birthday. Ow. So it is. It's it's really terrible. And it's really, really sad. And it contributes to them being super rare. And it contributes to them being super rare. So if we found a treatment that allowed the, these individuals to actually live and then have children of their own, perhaps, now those genes may... Now, I, I'm not a geneticist, but mm -hmm. it might be more likely that they could get passed on. And mm -hmm. so then it becomes part of the population. You know, this is something that, um, for example, we see in cystic fibrosis. Like when, right. uh, you know, half a century ago, people barely lived into their teens mm -hmm, with cystic yeah. fibrosis. Now it's very common for people to be able to live into adulthood, well into adulthood for some of them, and they're having their own children. So the genes are moving in different ways that they didn't move before. And even if you don't pass it on, as people live longer, you still see the incidence in the population grows because you don't have everybody dying before they hit 20. Yeah. They're dying when they're 40. So you have twice as many people or they're dying when they're 60. So yeah. you have three times as many people with the uh, condition. Mm -hmm. so, so they're less rare. <laughs> exactly. So rarity won't always be rare. Be the toast of the town, the girl on the go, and the type of pony every pony, every pony should know. I have kids. <laughs> <laughs> you do. You do. I have the soundtrack from that movie going through my head right now. Anyway, as for how rare diseases pop up 
there are different distribution patterns around the world. Some diseases are totally randomly distributed and pop up sort of however in different parts of the world, um, the ones related to genetic mutations, things like that. Other ones tend to have pockets of prevalence and and pockets of non-existence, really. So a, a good example of this, again, is something like cystic fibrosis. It's far more common in um, people of European descent and mm-hmm. in the Americas. The U.S. has one of the highest rates of cystic fibrosis in the whole world, whereas in most parts of Asia, there is some evidence to say that it's underdiagnosed, but it's still quite rare. It, it's a rare disease no matter what, but there's far more of it. For us, you know, most people have heard of cystic fibrosis, right? Whereas in other parts of the world, they may not have actually heard of this disease because nobody has it. Mm-hmm. And when a disease is legitimately rare, it is also less likely for it to be diagnosed correctly because right. physicians are going to be less familiar with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that is what a rare disease is. Mostly genetic doesn't affect a lot of people. There's another group of diseases that we here in Canada would consider rare in our current environment, but are not actually rare diseases mm. at all. They yeah. affect huge numbers of people. And these, unfortunately, are grouped together as called the neglected tropical diseases, right. or sometimes yep. just the neglected diseases. For someone here to have a tropical disease, especially out of nowhere, that is rare because we don't, they're not endemic here. But a lot of these um, conditions are endemic places and affect not just thousands or hundreds of thousands, but millions of people. But we don't hear about it. We don't see it at all. And many people aren't getting treated. Right now, there's 20 different diseases or conditions that are on the World Health Organization list of neglected diseases. And interestingly, one of those is snake bite. That is a new thing really? there because it is so common and it causes disfigurement and pain and suffering to so many people in certain parts of the world. And snake antivenom is really difficult to access and really expensive. Mm-hmm. It's hard to store. It's hard mm-hmm. to store. It And so... That's a really interesting thing that it's not a, a disease per se. It's a poisoning, actually, but uh, it's on that list. So remember how I said that rare diseases are genetic? Most neglected diseases are not. They're infectious. So um, bacterial, um, parasitic is very common. These types of diseases generally occur in countries that are of lower socioeconomic status, where there's a lot of poverty, where there's a lack of sanitation, a lack of medical um, facilities, um, and just a, a lack of general infrastructure. It makes sense in a way that in our world works, but it these are diseases that are common and are happening to the poorest of the poor people and the people with the least defenses against these kinds of things. Like how Madagascar has had a plague outbreak every year since 1980? Right, exactly. So for us, oh, the plague, that was, you know, centuries ago. That's done now, right? Except it's not. No. No. Just here. You know, we we don't have to deal with it. But it's happening all the time in, in so many other places. Until recently, measles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're hearing about that again. <laughs> Because now it's affecting white people again, yep. is, is, yeah. the, is the story. <laughs> so why are these diseases neglected? Well, we kind of talked about it already. Poverty. Nobody likes to deal with poverty in any way or even acknowledge that it exists or 
So it's easier to just pretend that it's not part of life, right? It's happening far away over there, or that's just a fact of life of living over there, whereas we'd never accept that kind of thing here. But that's, that's a big thing. Now, you might be thinking, well, the World Health Organization, there's there's actually lots of work being done on infectious disease in, in a lot of these parts of the world. The thing is, though, the efforts have really been concentrated on what they call the big three. So that's HIV, AIDS, TB, and malaria. So these do affect huge numbers of people, and they are fatal and in many cases and debilitating and that. But they're not the only ones. But they're not the only ones. And the huge numbers of people that are affected every year or just constantly by these other neglected diseases is not small compared to the big three. The big three gets a little bit more attention partly because they are fatal. A lot of the neglected diseases tend not to be fatal. Some of them can be, um, but a lot of them tend to just cause a lot of suffering, a lot of disability, disfigurement, um, a lot of issues like that. So you can yay. live. Yeah, yay. So so leprosy, for example, is on the list of le- neglected tropical diseases. You can live for decades with leprosy, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess why, you know, if you're not going to die immediately, it seems some people might say, oh, it's hard to put our resources there. With limited resources, we want to deal with the ones that are either highly, highly infectious, which actually a lot of these neglected diseases are highly infectious. Not leprosy, Um, though. Leprosy is actually not very infectious. Right. Some of (laughs) them are, but some of them aren't. But like the ones that are easily spread or that are have a, a faster mortality, if you will. There's often a lag time with a lot of these diseases, too. So you don't see them develop right away. So again, it's hard to say, oh, is it this? Is it that? What did this cause it? Did that cause it? So there's resources, but they're being really focused on the big three. They're not paying attention to the smaller ones or the ones that are just kind of constantly breaking out. There is a bit of a social stigma around accessing or be having access to treatment, unfortunately, especially because so many conditions cause disfigurement and and problems like that. There's some social stigma around it and makes it difficult to make a societal change to get people to be able to access treatment or even bring treatment in for things. So that is a big challenge too. But the biggest reason is like I said, there's so much poverty. So for a lot for many of these diseases, they have to do with lack of sanitation. So things like the guinea worm have to do with the fact that there's contaminated water and people have to drink it and bathe in it and cook with it and all of that. So they get infected with it until they can bring in better systems and build proper safe systems of fresh water and that for the people living there, it's really, really difficult. Or until they can eradicate some of the the flies, the biting flies that carry certain parasites, mm-hmm. they just keep having outbreaks. It's actually not expensive to treat a lot of these neglected diseases. Many of them are less than one US dollar per case to treat it. That's heartbreaking. It is. Part of the problem, though, is that the countries can't afford the millions of dollars that they would need to spend And because people keep getting reinfected because the whole system is broken, they can't afford it. So without outside help, they, they want to, they, they recognize it's not expensive. It's just there are so many people and there's, the resources are so finite. That's like the MMR vaccine has to be refrigerated and you need at least two doses to be, to have it completely eradicated. And it's hard to manage the resources for that kind of program. Absolutely. 
it, it, it is a difficult situation. And a lot of people will argue like, yeah, we can treat the cases, but what we should really be doing is trying to deal with the situation there. So then it just gets less likely that people get infected in the first place, or if they get infected, they're not reinfected immediately. And and so on and so forth. It's so hard when there's eight different directions that you could be concentrating on and there's not enough resources to go around. Exactly. I but mean, there are, there are enough there resources. Are I mean, one of the reasons that are being committed to the problem. One of the reasons right. these these areas are so poor is the, you know, centuries long legacy of colonialism. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons that North America and uh, Northern Europe are so rich is because of the centuries of exploitation of the global south. Cough it up, Bezos, you coward. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this this is our responsibility as much as it's a, anyone's mm-hmm. responsibility. Of course it is. Uh, I mean, the world gets smaller every day. It gets harder and harder to claim that that's their problem and not our problem, especially if we can very easily go places and, and do things without thinking about it. There are some people who act- who are trying to coin um, the idea of neglected uh, diseases of poverty here in, in North America, particularly in the U.S. There are certain types of infections that are apparently quite common in some of the poorest communities in the United States, but it's underdiagnosed and undertreated, and no one seems to care. Again, it's not highly con- infectious. It's not fatal. It still causes problems for people, and people generally shouldn't be infected with, you know, worms and things like that. But these things are happening. But because it is the poorest people and the people with the fewest resources to do anything, it doesn't make it doesn't make the headlines. And so something like a rare disease that literally five people in the world have will probably get more headlines than something that several thousand in some U.S. cities are living with at any given time. So the reason that these definitions are important, of course, is that they're part of frameworks that governments use to incentivize the profit-driven pharmaceutical industry to develop treatments for rare diseases, or in some cases to simply manufacture and sell treatments that they have already developed, but that pharmaceutical companies judge not worth selling because there are so few patients, or at least so few patients who can pay Uh, Patients are customers, after all, and a small patient population can mean a consumer base that isn't worth your while. So what are we doing about it? As Jem said, we need that framework to deal with something. It's it's that whole idea that if we don't have a diagnosis, we can't always do something to treat it, or we don't know how to move forward on something. We need sort of an idea of what the issue is. And then we can build other frameworks to match that. So we mentioned the uh, Rare Disease Act, or sometimes it's called the Orphan Diseases Legislation. It's generally paired with some kind of an orphan drug legislation. And the reason that they were put into place, like Jem said, is to get pharma companies to actually put resources into making these medications. When you only have a few thousand people that are going to pay for this medication, it's not really worth it, right? It's it's a lot of money. It's a lot of effort to put into it. And they know that they could just make medications for more common diseases. And so they would just put their resources into that. So the Orphan Drug Acts, um, depending on where they're at, they're generally a framework that give special perks to companies for 
developing or maintaining some of these drugs as well. Because, it, you know, there's some medications that are really only good for one thing. And so it's to make sure that they keep producing it rather than just not producing it at all. That kind of falls within that that framework as well. So in the U.S., how this works is that uh, under the Orphan Drug Act, the company gets market monopoly for their medication for seven, it was seven years, and I believe it's been extended now for being the first ones to come up with something like that. They get up to 50% tax breaks for making it, uh, for for developing it. And um, there's a couple other things like that. So basically, they get a lot of government funding, and they get the ability to make back as much money as they want in the first few years. And that's some interesting. When they have market monopoly, they can charge whatever they want. Yay, capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. So the Orphan Drug Act was a little slow to start. But once pharma companies realized that they could just charge anything. Ew. And insurance companies would probably pay for it or were paying for some of it. They did that. They did exactly that. So it is very common for orphan drugs to cost in the hundreds of thousands of dollars mm-hmm. per year for mm-hmm. one individual. So I don't know about you, but I don't really know anybody who can uh, afford hundreds of thousands of dollars in one year. And never mind however many more years they plan to live, mm-hmm. right? So long as they have insurance before they're diagnosed, right. their family might survive that kind of financial hit? Right. So while it does, these frameworks do get drugs to the market, they're not affordable for most people. And think about how many people don't have insurance that would pay for that, that will still get these genetic diseases that they had no choice in developing. It is important to have some kind of a framework. And that's one. So people do criticize Canada for not having anything. Back in 2012, Harper brought it up. He was going to have the rare diseases framework. It was all over Health Canada's website. And in 2017, it just disappeared. It's been scrubbed. It's been scrubbed. But Trudeau's great, you guys. (laughs) So we, we didn't have anything. We had a faint hope of something. And we're back to where we started there. I don't feel like we really lost anything because we're still at the bottom here. <laughs> what is being said, though, is that the the people sort of in the know uh, on this topic are saying, yes, we do need something, but it shouldn't look like any of the existing frameworks right now. Because even the EU's framework works very similarly to the US's. So, yes, there's more orphan drugs. Yes, they get these drugs passed a lot faster. Health Canada is very slow in accepting new things. However, there's well-known problems with this system, like the financial exploitation of people who definitely don't have the means. So if we were to get something, hopefully we'd get something else a little bit. As I alluded to earlier, the U.S. has stricter guidelines than the EU does for it. So the EU specifically allows for things like vaccines and snakebite antivenoms in there to help encourage development of medications and treatments for some of these neglected diseases. I don't know how many pharma companies have taken them up on that, but it is interesting that they made it intentionally broad like that. So it wasn't just restricted to those rare cancers, rare genetic diseases that we're accustomed to thinking of here, but thinking a little bit more globally. One other thing I should mention, with those neglected diseases, while they're not endemic here for the most part, some of them are starting to make a bit of a comeback. We have global travel. 
right? So people frequently travel all over the place, pick up something. And again, if you pick up something that has a lag time of weeks, months, years, even, Mm -hmm. you come back here, how many people did you unknowingly spread it to depending on on uh, the severity of that. And also there's climate change happening Mm -hmm. as well. That's allowing some of the things that um, you know, parts of the southern U.S. are definitely tropical, definitely can support the growth of some of these things. Ha- they haven't had it for many, many years, but it's starting to come back. I'm worried about just scaring affluent white people into into caring because it might affect them, though. I, I really think that mankind is your business. Certainly. I didn't say that to to make us feel like, oh, it could happen to me. Now it matters because it should matter no matter what. And even if it doesn't, uh, even if it's not infectious, I'm thinking of things like Chagas disease where you could go and pick that up and not know for 20 years. Well, that's specifically Mm -hmm. one of the ones that is spreading. So if you go to donate blood in Canada with Canadian Blood Services, they ask you that question. If if you know somebody who's been diagnosed with it or if you've ever had it because it has such a long leg period and um, it's easy to bring it back without knowing. Mm -hmm. Our listeners might not know about Chagas disease. Can you give a brief description? Uh, It is contracted by the bite of an insect, I think. Um, and it basically gets into your heart fibers and makes them really stiff and leads to heart failure 20, 30 years down the road. And you can see it in like a slice of heart tissue, but otherwise it's pretty difficult to diagnose until you start dying. Trypanosomiasis. It is (laughs) spread by kissing bugs. So they will... Uh, Why would you kiss a bug? (laughs) Uh, Just what the bug is called. They will bite you in the night and then defecate in the wound and give you this happy little disease. So don't kiss them. (laughs) (laughs) That was the first problem. Next, Ashlyn is going to be telling us about another rare disease. So I'm going to be talking about diabetes today. What's that? (laughs) (laughs) Never heard of it. (laughs) I'm Wilfred Brimley, and I'd like to talk to you for a few minutes about diabetes. Oh, I hate that guy so much. (laughs) You don't like Wilfred Brimley? No. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) so you might be wondering, why is she talking about diabetes in a podcast about rare diseases? I think most of us know someone with diabetes. I'm diabetic. About 9.5% of the American population is diabetic and about 7.3% of Canadians. But uh, I was looking through a list of rare diseases. And how many types of diabetes do you think there are? I am aware of, I guess, insulin-dependent diabetes and uh, insulin resistance or type 2 diabetes. Okay. There's like five or six. Okay. More than five and less than 27. <laughs> she was trying to guess in the car. <laughs> going to do a binary search? Are you going to give us an I thought you were just prices writing me. <laughs> <laughs> nope, and I purposely didn't Google. Okay, so there are at least eight kinds of diabetes, which mm. I would never, ever have guessed before today. But I was looking through a list of rare diseases, and I found one that I had never heard of. New research strongly suggests that the old definition of type 1 and type 2 diabetes are quite outdated. Um, So I'm assuming that that's where Laura got five or six kinds. Yes. So 
used to be Does that include like um gestational diabetes? Well, so Is that, that was like, like the big one? three. Yeah. Okay. Gestational and then type one, type two would be Type one yeah. has been expanded into three different ones, I think. Just recently it was like huh. Like, yeah, there's different pockets of it. Yeah. I always thought either your pancreas was squirting or it wasn't. <laughs> I could really use a new pancreas if anyone has one, by the way. <laughs> I keep um, offering, but she won't take mine. <laughs> so there's definitely a few kinds of diabetes that are caused by autoimmune factors rather than huh. quote unquote lifestyle factors. And then uh, at least two different subtypes of type 2 diabetes, um, which result in different kinds of progression and result in different kinds of damage to your body. Like one subtype, you're much more likely to get retinal damage, and the other subtype, you're much more likely to get kidney damage. So it would be really useful to patients if this was more widely recognized and they could get treatment that was best suited to their form of diabetes right Mm -hmm. so then there's also gestational diabetes which shows up when you're pregnant and is the fault of the father's genes Um, (laughs) oh wow (laughs) pretty much so one of the coolest things i learned in my university career was the way that mothers and fathers genes battle over baby size and the mother's genes wants to keep the baby a reasonable size so that it can get out. <laughs> and the father's genes are like, no, I want the mother's body to give this baby as many resources as possible. Make it as big as you can. <laughs> grow, grow, grow. Yeah. <laughs> Gross. And so, <laughs> and so those two forces are battling it out and can result in gestational diabetes. Yay. Which normally goes away after delivery. There's also a super rare form that I'm not going to talk about. One of them is um, basically a mitochondrial disease that also results in blindness. So it is a a type of diabetes that shows up and is sort of like halfway between type 1 and type 2 and also causes you to go blind over many years Um, and used to only be found in like 45 families and was definitely genetic. And now they've, I guess, found it in more places, more people, but it's still pretty, pretty rare. But the other one is called diabetes insipidus. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. That's quite the name. Yeah. Even a Google search for how many types of diabetes are there doesn't come up with this one. Because after I found this one on the list, I was Googling trying to figure out, like, are there other diseases that are diabetes but are not you know, in the normal diabetes mellitus group. Everything is diabetes. <laughs> Everything is just a different version. Yeah, I'm a diabetes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's totally unrelated to uh, diabetes mellitus, um, but they share that first name because the hallmark of both types of disease is that you make a lot of urine, like a lot. <laughs> Sorry, which one is mellitus? Mellitus is what we commonly know as diabetes. So type oh. 1 and type 2 are both, if you ever see the the shortened form, it's like DM. So yeah. DM right. for diabetes right. mellitus. DM2. And the mellitus refers to the sweetness of the yes. urine. Yeah, right. so diabetes mellitus so honey is urine, lots yeah. of sweet pee. <laughs> yep, that, uh, and that's how it would be diagnosed uh, yeah, by the Greeks. Yeah, that's how it was diagnosed in yep. ye olden times. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that if I do write the MCAT, it's not a Greek MCAT that I'll be writing. <laughs> you don't want to lick pee? I would rather not. <laughs> this is not an episode of House. <laughs> <laughs> or Ono, Ross, and Carrie. Uh, so Laura probably has a leg up on here, so she can go last. But um, <laughs> what is a normal amount of urine to pass per day, do you think? Take a wild guess. 
Is it a coffee day or a water day? <laughs> it's always a coffee day for Jem. It's always a coffee day for me. However, uh, the diuretic effects of coffee are basically negligible if you consume caffeine on a regular basis. It's essentially not a diuretic anymore. I would say a liter and a quarter. Okay. I mean, there is a range, right? So two liters. Okay. Well, it's going to be proportional to what you drink for the most part. So an average person, two to three liters. But if you drink a ton of water during the day, then it could be for four liters, five liters, depending on how much you drink. How many times do I want to step away from my desk during the day? (laughs) Exactly. That's a really high guess because the um, range that I found was 800 mil to 2000 mil. So just under a liter to two liters is a normal range. So a person with uh, diabetes insipidus can produce up to 20 liters of urine a day. What? Can you imagine going to the bathroom that much? Nope. (laughs) Just imagining them walk into the bathroom and walk out as a raisin. (laughs) (laughs) So insipidus means weak or watered down, since the urine produced by these patients is extremely dilute. One of the ways that you can diagnose diabetes insipidus is to withhold water from the patient and observe them. So someone with, I'm just going to start saying DI, because that seems way less syllables, uh, is to withhold water from them. Someone with DI will produce the same amount of extremely dilute urine for a dangerously long time, even if they're not getting water. Um, so their body will just keep It's not proportional it to their intake, exactly. which it should be. So obviously the biggest danger of this disease is dehydration and seizures that can result from dehydration. Right. So you just have to keep getting that water into you. Um, there are several different causes of DI and they don't seem to be uh, super related. So they're caused by different things with other causes of those causes, if that makes okay. sense. So this can happen to you for different reasons, depending on what exactly has gone wrong in your body. The first one that you have to rule out, dipsogenic diabetes insipidus, can cause production of large amounts of diluted urine, but the underlying cause is drinking an excessive amount of fluids. (laughs) So (laughs) that is something that you have to rule out. Um, We've discovered perpetual motion. (laughs) um, But it can be caused by damage to the hypothalamus, and so you're... Your thirst oh, regulation mechanism right. isn't Yikes. working right. So, so you're you always just thirsty. keep drinking, even though your body doesn't need the much water. So that is the first thing that you need to rule out. And so it's just a method of homeostasis, basically. You're drinking so much, so you pee a lot. Yeah, exactly. And, okay. So yeah. Hmm. So the treatment for it basically is to tell the patient to suck on ice chips or sour candy or something, because right now we don't have a way to treat your thirst mechanism is screwed up, unfortunately. So that can be one of the hardest and most frustrating things about that type of the disease. The more common, there are two more common versions of it. The first one is called central diabetes insipidus uh, or neurogenic, and it is caused by a lack of vasopressin production in the brain. Um, It's a hormone which is also called antidiuretic hormone, which is kind of self-explanatory. Uh, It helps control how fast or slow fluids are excreted. And ADH is made in a part of the brain called the hypothalamus, and it is stored in the pituitary gland, uh, which is a small gland in the base of the brain that does a lot of hormone-related things. Um, So neurogenic diabetes insipidus can be either a failure of production in the hypothalamus or a failure of release at the pituitary. So either of those Mm. things going wrong can screw up your production of this very important hormone. 
Um, some causes of that failure can include head injury, benign tumors, leukemia, autoimmune disorders, granulomas, uh, but there is also a super rare genetic variation that causes the neurogenic version. Uh, but in something like 30% of cases, the cause of that failure to produce enough vasopressin is just unknown. We don't know why. Hmm. It doesn't work. But it just doesn't work. Um, neurogenic diabetes insipidus is generally treated with vasopressin mimicking drugs like desmopressin. So we just give you the hormone you're not mm -hmm. making enough of. Pretty simple. Nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, <laughs> on the other hand, is a form of DI that is caused by malfunctioning kidneys. Mm -hmm. So instead of not making enough vasopressin, your kidneys just don't react to vasopressin properly. And so they uh, release way too much water from the body. They're not concentrating your urine the way that you should. Um, the symptoms are pretty identical, like su super, super thirsty all the time, and the risks of dehydration and seizures are similar. Uh, the most obvious cause is a kidney or systemic disorder like amyloidosis or polycystic kidney disease. Um, you can also uh, get this by just having like a super off electrolyte imbalance, which is one of the easier forms of this to treat. You just fix that and you're good. Or some other kidney disease will cause that as well. Um, wow, our bodies are messed up. Yeah. <laughs> There's so many things that can go wrong. It's a miracle we're all walking around. Oh, yeah. And in so many different ways. Yeah. Right? Like, this is one disease, and there's, like, four big causes with 20 different sub-causes. Yeah. <laughs> you can also acquire nephrogenic diabetes insipidus by uh, things like high blood calcium and lithium toxicity. I'm so happy because today found my friends in my head. So you can get this oh, from boy. drugs that you're taking. Hmm. <laughs> Exciting. Uh, this type of diabetes insipidus is much harder to treat than the central form because enough of the hormone is there, your kidneys just aren't using it properly. And if your kidneys are already damaged in something like polycystic kidney disease, mm -hmm. then it's going to be what even are we gonna harder. Give you? Exactly. Yeah. So what's the last thing that you should give somebody whose biggest problem is making huge amounts of urine? Water. Okay. A diuretic. A diuretic. <laughs> so people with nephrogenic diabetes insipidus are often treated with diuretics. Yep. It's a miracle! Uh, so because of the way that diuretics work, they will actually encourage the kidneys to concentrate more of the toxins into your urine. So you're still going to be producing way too much urine, but the toxins will actually be getting into it instead of just staying in your body ah, and floating around. You're the good kind That's of really interesting. I know. It's the wildest thing. You're yeah. producing 20 liters of urine a day. Have a diuretic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Squeeze out every last drop. <laughs> right? But part of... The problem with rare diseases like this is that we have this drug that kind of works for one of the problems, which is your electrolyte balances go nuts. And you often will, even though you're peeing all the time, you're holding on to all the sodium that you should right. be getting rid of. So that's a mess. So we have this one drug that kind of works. But if we were able to put more research money into a disease like this, maybe we could find something that works better and isn't just like sort of a mistake that we realized right. works, right? But I thought all the money going into diabetes was to shame people. <laughs> people with this nephrogenic diabetes, uh, they need to consume enough fluids to equal the amount of urine produced. So the answer is not, I'm peeing too much, so I need to drink less water. They just need to keep taking in a ridiculous amount of water, which must be so hard. All day long. Yeah. That's all you do all day long. Can you get one of those prescription sippy cup hats? <laughs> <laughs> 
And yeah, and then the first line treatment drug wise is uh, something called hydrochlorothiazide, which yep. is a diuretic. Okay, so I copy and pasted this explanation, which I think is really cool, but I couldn't really paraphrase it. So, thiazide is used in treatment because diabetes insipidus causes the excretion of more water than sodium. This condition results in a net concentrating effect on the serum, increasing its osmolarity. This high serum osmolarity stimulates excessive thirst in an attempt to dilute the serum back to normal and provide free water for excreting the excess serum solutes. So you are drinking too much water because you're really thirsty because there's too much sodium in your blood and you're not getting rid of it. However, since the patient is unable to concentrate urine to excrete the excess solutes, the resulting urine fails to decrease serum osmolarity and the cycle repeats itself, hence excessive urination. Thiazide diuretics allow increased excretion of sodium and water, thereby reducing the serum osmolarity and eliminating volume excess. Basically, thiazides allow increased solute excretion in the urine, breaking the polydipsia-polyuria cycle. (laughs) So it it tries to break the drinking too much and peeing too much cycle by getting rid of the sodium in your blood. (sighs) So that is... Diabetes insipidus. Um, gestational diabetes insipidus is also possible. Oh, um, my God. Interesting. Yeah. So huh. it is because... This Venn diagram is getting way too complex. <laughs> <laughs> um, an enzyme made by the placenta breaks down the mother's vasopressin. Oh, <laughs> and so geez. that screws up your ability to excrete water properly. And you can just treat it again with that desmopressin, um, which... I guess it doesn't get broken down the same way by the... Or you would dose it so that it would sort of even even itself out. Yeah. Yeah. So, and almost all women who develop gestational diabetes insipidus uh, have a pretty mild case that doesn't cause super noticeable symptoms and it goes away after delivery. Hmm. I had not heard of that one. Like the gestational one? Huh. I guess I think that probably, this is pure speculation on my part. When you're going through pregnancy, all kinds of weird things are happening to your body anyway. So much And so having to drink a lot and pee a lot doesn't register on the scale of weird shit that's happening and you just (laughs) deal with it until delivery. Well, that's – isn't that something that's one of the stereotypical – Yeah, because your bladder is being compressed. Well, and you're just thirstier because you're supporting a bigger blood volume and and stuff like that. Someone's tap dancing on your bladder. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, yeah, how much thirstier am I, right? And so it doesn't really get uh, diagnosed unless it's pretty extreme and you get the blood test and you figure out that this uh, vasopressin is just not working anymore because it's being broken down by an enzyme secreted by the placenta. Bananas. Bodies are weird. moly. (laughs) Just goes to show that babies are alien, yeah. alien invaders. Uh, parasites, yes. <laughs> parasites, yes. for sure. So now you know more about diabetes than you did before. Lauren, you're going to tell us all about toxic shock syndrome. That I am, Jim. When I was a young person whose body was entering puberty, I lived in fear of the dreaded toxic shock syndrome. Did anyone else get that warning? Don't leave your tampon in for more than a couple hours or it will kill you mm-hmm. immediately. I'm afraid not. No. <laughs> oh, you're going to learn. I read the inserts. Mm-hmm. Well, naturally, of course, these warnings were wrong. Well, wrong-ish? Depends on who you ask. People who menstruate have been shoving stuff up there for most of recorded history. Gene All's Earth Children series talks of using strips of mammoth hide as a prehistoric pad, but it's hard to prove a biodegradable proof without a written language. We can bet that folks were inserting absorbent plants or animal fluff to stem the flow for as long as people have had conscious thought that blood is messy and inconvenient and attracts predators. 
The first recorded historical record of a tampon can be found in ancient Egyptian medical records that describe tampons comprised of material derived from the papyrus plant. In the 5th century BCE, Greeks fashioned their protection by wrapping lint around a small piece of wood, according to Hippocrates. I am assuming the wood was the applicator and that folks didn't walk around with a stick inside. The Romans used wool. Other materials have included paper, vegetable fibers, natural sponges, grass, and cotton. Modern tampons came about after the Great War, where, and I'm not sure if this is apocryphal, but battlefield nurses used wound-packing preparations for off-label uses. The first modern tampon, with applicator, was patented in 1931 anyway. In 1933, Gertrude Tendrick bought the trademark for the word Tampax, which is a mashup of the word tampon and the word vaginal packs. <laughs> really? Yeah. Really? Wild. Pax vaginalis. And they caught on with, with menstruating people entering the workforce during World War II, and by 1949, they were prevalent in the United States and other parts of the post-war developed world. I hope that within the next decade, they are untaxed and available free in all public washrooms everywhere. You sly dog! You got me monologuing! I can't believe Anyway, toxic shock syndrome was first identified in 1978. Seven patients aged 8 to 17 presented with similar symptoms in a Denver-area hospital. High fever, confusion, shock, diarrhea, headache, and a sunburn-like rash. Three of the patients were menstruating at the time they got sick. The illness was caused by a toxin, and the patients presented with a circulatory shock, so the diagnosing doctor artfully coined the name of toxic shock syndrome. TSS is caused by toxin TSST-1, which is produced from the bacterium Staphylococcus aureus. It's which a, is everywhere! Yeah, it's mm-hmm. just a vaginal staph infection. Staph infections have different effects on different people. Some folks are asymptomatic. Some break out in hives or in pimples, and some people get food poisoning. Well, in a different different way to get staph. <laughs> when TSST-1 crosses the vaginal mucosa and enters the bloodstream, it can result in bodily effects that include low blood pressure, organ failure, or death. TSS can occur because staph aureus contains what are called superantigens. Antigens are substances that our T cells bind to. Normally, some T-cells bind to antigens and then display them on their surface to show other T-cells that the infection is being dealt with. The, hey, I've got this one, guys. Superantigens, however, skip the displaying step, causing more <laughs> T-cells to be activated. <laughs> yeah, that's not good. These activated T-cells then go on to release cytokines, which are proteins that cause inflammation. Normally, inflammation is a good sign, as it is the result of the body increasing blood flow to an injured area in order to heal it. Makes sense. But too many T-cells release too many cytokines, which cause too much inflammation in a process called a cytokine storm. (laughs) TSS is generally treated with intravenous antibiotics, both in hospital and for six to eight weeks after with a PICC line. Medications to stabilize blood pressure are also prescribed, and gamma globulin to boost the immune system. But why, after literal millennia of people using tampon or tampon-like items to staunch menstrual flow, was this new toxin-based disease showing up in the late 1970s to early 1980s? Because we as a society had come to rely on a different type of tampon. Rely was a Procter & Gamble-produced tampon (laughs) (laughs) that first came to market in 1974. Rely was shaped like a teabag, ow, and could expand to three times its own volume, and absorb, take a wild guess, three ounces. 1.25 liters. <laughs> Jim, what do you know about menstruation? Because I don't think it's much. 20 times its own weight in liquid. Holy crow. Well, what was its weight? I want to know if I was right. 
How heavy is a tampon, Ashlyn? <laughs> Not much, but exactly. Times 20 might be three ounces. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's a true story. Yep. So this absorbency changed it inside to a mushroom-shaped mass. No. I can't God. even fathom yeah. how heavy that would be. Well, just bad, just okay. bad all around. This super tampon was made of polyester foam and <laughs> chips of carboxymethylcellulose. Oh my god! A gelling agent. <laughs> I'm imagining the spray foam that you used to like seal. Yeah. Welcome to vaginal health, Jim. <laughs> so both this polyester foam and these carboxymethylcellulose. They allowed this tampon to absorb liquid like a modern-day baby diaper in a swimming pool. <laughs> there were reports of people using just one of these relied tampons for an entire period. Oh, dear God. And then I thought about the extraction process, and I did a full-body cringe. Oh, God. That, that can't have been common. Like, that's got to be one of those things that, like, everybody's heard the story, but how many people actually did it? It was recommended. Oh, what? Use one and you're done? Yeah! Protection you can rely on. In 1980, there were 812 period-related cases of TSS, and we reached that magic number that still shows up on the inserts in tampon packs, which is 10 in 100,000 menstruating people worldwide. Mm. The Center for Disease Control surveyed the infected people and found rely use was linked to most of the incidents, and in September 1980, the brand was removed from market. Discontinuing Rely did not lead to the complete eradication of tampon-based TSS as hoped, nor did the complete removal of all polyester fabrics from tampon creation by 1990. Cases went down, but were still reported, especially in relation with using other super-absorbency brands of tampons. It had to be something other than polyester and carboxymethylcellulose. Oxygen. Vaginas are anaerobic and generally self-cleaning. That's why folks who have them shouldn't steam them. Thanks, Gwyneth. They shouldn't insert a vaginal cleaning or tightening stick. Tightening stick? They look like cylindrical emery boards, and they're supposed to clean off. What? Yeah, it's a brand new thing. Yeah. Would you like to sand your vagina? Good. That's an option. Yep. Oh my god. What? Oh my. And the advertising picture has them on like a branch of a tree because they're supposed to be all natural. And all I can think of is, that's bark. Oh my god, okay. I didn't know they were called tightening sticks. That's extra upsetting. Because you're supposed to insert them and it will help tighten everything. Yeah, yeah, like hell it will. As I'm saying, these are in the do not do category. (laughs) Yeah. People who have had a gender-affirming vaginoplasty may be told by their surgical professionals to douche during the healing process, but if the vagina is producing healthy mucosa, you should not have to do any extra internal maintenance. Leave it alone. (laughs) Menstrual blood produces a much higher pH than is normally present in the vagina, and this more alkaline environment is hospitable for bacteria, including staph. Superabsorbent tampons are larger than their normal flow counterparts and have more places for oxygen and staph to meet and to party. Couple that with all of the surrounding moisture being sucked into super tampons, which is a process that can cause tiny ulcerations or micro tears in the vaginal wall, and the longer time with those tampons spent inside to develop a bacteria, and you have the literal perfect environment for a toxic shock epidemic. Hmm. Toxic shock syndrome can occur anywhere that Staph aureus can get its preferred breeding ground, and it's not just present in a menstruating vagina. But around 80% of people are immune, because they have developed TSST-1 antibodies. What I'm saying is, folks, it's rare. There were 24 reported cases in 2017. 
That's 24 cases in the United States. Worldwide. Worldwide. Hmm. Still, that is a rare disease. It is very rare. Definitely short of the 10 in 100,000 referenced on the tampon box insert. It is still important to do some basic prevention. Use smaller tampons if possible. Don't dry insert tampons when you are not menstruating. Like, don't practice. Please don't practice, especially if you're young, because this does occur in younger menstruating people than it does right. in people who have had a chance to develop more antibodies in their lifetime. Don't shove anything abrasive up there, ever, ever. Do not use these tightening wands. And of course, this is the most important one. Wash your damn hands before you change your tampon. Or your cup. Yes. Yes. Just washing your hands is good in general. Yeah. Wash your hands. Before and after you do anything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's maybe a little extreme. Gem's being treated right now. (laughs) Hey, my my psychologist gave me a pretty clean bill of mental health. Everything is pretty well controlled at the moment, so. But how are your hands? (laughs) Clean. (laughs) Yeah, he'll he'll never stop cringing at the stickiness next to him at the table. (laughs) (laughs) Children are disgusting. It's a true story. They are. Speaking of mental health, we're going to end today's topic with a very rare disorder indeed called the Cotard Delusion. I'm going to preface this segment with a content warning for discussions of mental health and self-harm. Content warnings aside, this is pretty dark. The Cotard Delusion, sometimes colloquially referred to as Walking Dead Syndrome, is a rare mental illness characterized by severe delusions of negation. Symptoms vary in severity, but include chronic depression, hypochondria, and the conviction that one is already dead, or that one simply does not exist at all. Some patients report not only this derealization of self, but also quite severe sensory hallucinations that confirm their belief that they are dead. For example, they claim to see or smell their own flesh rotting. The Cotard delusion is incredibly rare. So rare, in fact, that we don't really have statistics. We just have case studies. The syndrome was first identified by French neurologist Jules Cotard in 1880, who called it le délire des négations, the delirium of negation. In a lecture to the Société Médico-Psychologique, Cotard described the case of a 43-year-old patient he referred to as Mademoiselle X, who was convinced that she had, quote, no brain, nerves, chest, or entrails, and was just skin and bone, end quote. She refused to eat, for she was convinced that, quote, she was eternal and would live forever. She died of starvation. The 1996 book Method in Madness, Case Studies in Cognitive Neuropsychiatry, describes a more contemporary case of the delirium of negation, relating the story of a Scottish man who had suffered a brain injury as a result of a motorcycle accident. His case shows how real events can be reinterpreted through the prism of the Qatar delusion. Quoting from the article, In January 1990, after his discharge from hospital in Edinburgh, his mother took him to South Africa. He was convinced that he had been taken to hell, which was confirmed by the heat and that he had died of septicemia, which had been a risk early in his recovery, or perhaps from AIDS. He had read a story in The Scotsman about someone with AIDS who died from septicemia, or from an overdose of a yellow fever injection. He thought he had, quote, borrowed his mother's spirit to show him around hell, and that she was asleep in Scotland. 
In an article published in 2016, Salamine, Chan, and Morihara related a case report of a woman in her 50s with a history of anxiety and psychosis, whom they called Ms. A. The patient presented at the emergency department after a week of altered mental state, insisting that she was dead, refusing food and medications. Quote, Ms. A indicated that command-type auditory hallucinations told her she was dead, that she had died as an infant, and that her family had died. She also expressed helplessness and negative cognitive distortions of inability to provide support for her family due to her condition. Voices communicated she was evil and that she had lost her bank account at home. So, uh, what causes the Qatar delusion? The short answer is we don't really know. It's most commonly diagnosed in patients suffering from other mental illnesses, most commonly clinical depression and schizophrenia, migraines, or brain tumors. However, aside from the symptoms that I've described, there are no specific diagnostic criteria for the Qatar delusion. It is absent from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, rendering diagnosis strongly dependent on the interpretation of the specific clinician. Researchers have compared Cotard to the Capgrass delusion. Uh, are you folks familiar with Capgrass? No. It's uh, characterized by the belief that family members or close friends have been replaced by identical imposters. Ooh. Okay, so I've heard of that, but I didn't know the name of it. One hypothesis is that capgrass occurs in patients with a dysfunction in their parietal lobe. While patients are able to recognize their loved one's physical features, damage to the information processing subsystem of their brain prevents them from associating that recognition with the normal feeling of familiarity one would expect. So it's uh, it's an affective problem. Mm -hmm. So you look at your wife and you know that that looks like your wife, but you don't feel that kinship that you expect to feel. You don't feel that recognition or familiarity. Hmm. Uh, and so you believe that these people have all been replaced by imposters. Some researchers have supposed that just as patients with capgrass are unable to recognize others as really them, patients with a Cotard delusion may experience derealization of themselves. Uh, this is far from certain, however. Quoting again from Solomon et al., the majority of computed tomography neuroimaging studies have found no gross structural changes in patients with Cotard delusion. A few investigations have associated Cotard syndrome with multifocal brain atrophy and enlargement of lateral and third ventricles, which may indicate a role for frontotemporoparietal circuitry in the pathophysiology of Cotard syndrome. So there are similarities between the uh, changes to brain structure that are observed in the two, two conditions but those similarities are not consistent. Hmm. While we don't know what causes it, the Cotard delusion is treatable. Antipsychotic medications and mood stabilizers have shown significant improvements, as has electroconvulsive therapy, which, as we discussed back on episode 105, is a legitimate treatment for depression and not the torture that it is often depicted in film. The belief that one is already dead is a frightening prospect, but it's not as hopeless as it sounds. Unlike Mademoiselle X, Ms. A did not die, quoting again from the case study. Notably, frequent reassurance by social workers about finances and psychotherapy were of benefit, as Ms. A began to identify elements that were in opposition to her delusion. She began to believe that she was alive. The elements identified included her drive to eat, her medical condition, and the feeling of her heartbeat and the reassurance of others. 
the patient was discharged with in-home psychotherapy to further address anxiety and cognitive distortions. Solomine et al. ends with the standard refrain that we would expect in a discussion of such an uncommon syndrome. Current studies remain limited as the syndrome is relatively rare, and to substantiate a hypothetical relationship, large cohort or cross-sectional studies are needed. Further research is needed to explore the pathogenesis of Cotard syndrome and possible methods of treatment. Wow. Scary stuff. Yeah, that's messed up. (laughs) Anyone have any closing thoughts on uh, rare diseases? Bodies are weird, yo. Mm. There's just so many of them. Yeah. Especially with the various definitions. Like, I'm, that still blows my mind, that statistic we talked about earlier, that one in 12 people has a rare disease. Mm-hmm. That's bananas. Yeah. That was something that, uh, I wouldn't say it was surprising. I wasn't shocked by it. But it was also a realization that, yeah, I probably know people that I've heard of these different things. And these are all rare diseases. And that, because I would have, before doing research in this, I would have thought of rare diseases as the kind of thing that you would see in those uh, TV specials where, like, they've found six people in the world that have this thing and like that, as opposed to, no, it's just less than 200,000 people. What are we talking about next month, Ashlyn? So I want to talk about various forms of culture in non-human animals. Hey, I, t- <laughs> I tweeted about that today. Yeah, really? about the chimpanzees. Oh, oh you didn't that? see that. <laughs> oh, the, the podcast also tweeted about that today. Oh, I don't go on Twitter like ever. <laughs> that's, that's very funny because when you said that, I assumed that you, yeah, I, I tweeted about the fact that humans are destroying chimpanzee so- society. Cultures. Yeah, they're turning oh, into no. a mo- monoculture. Yeah. Okay, well, we know what Jem's talking about. The most bummer <laughs> of all possible takes on this topic. <laughs> See you next month, everyone. (laughs) Good night. Cheers. Bye. (laughs) Laura's already reading her phone. (laughs) Yeah. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is produced by Jem Newman and Ashlyn Noble, with mix and tech production by Jem Newman. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or by sharing an episode with a friend. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Jem Newman. There's also a super rare form that I'm not going to talk about um, called... Crap, I lost it here. That's a weird name for it. (laughs) (laughs) Type 1, type 2, gestational, and crap, I lost it. (laughs) You're drinking so much, so you pee a lot. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Hmm. So, the... (laughs) Fuck off, Lauren. Lauren um, just uh, showed Ashlyn a uh, picture of the, uh, what do you the call drinking it? The, bird. Drinking the drinking bird. The drinking bird. bird. Desk <laughs> toy. <laughs> oh, and so geez. that screws up your uh, your excretion thing. Um, oh, God. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Term. <laughs> Don't put that in. Bird doctor. Don't put it in.